back in the 1800s, early 1800s, 90% of Americans were farmers. You know, either they were they were working in an ag space somehow, you know, they or at a minimum they had like a farm in their on their property to, to feed their family. And now it's more like 2% of Americans are farmers. So as you have these, you know, corporate funds come in and buy up larger parcels, what, one, it drives the price. There, there's some evidence that, that the recent spikes in farmland um, pricing has have been driven by investment activity and that's institutional investments. What's going on, everyone? This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, the show that will teach you how to build wealth with real estate without buying yourself another job. As always, I am your host, Taylor Lote. I'm a multifamily and self-storage real estate investor. And today we are joined by Chris Raleigh. Chris has a company, Harvest Returns, that he started in 2016 after retiring as a Navy captain. Today, we're going to get into his thoughts on the private credit space. Today, we're going to talk about his company and how he works with farmers and investors to provide capital for the farming and agriculture space. And there's so much we're going to talk about today. Chris, thanks so much for joining us today. Can you fill us out a little bit more about what your company, Harvest Returns, is up to these days? Yeah. Hey, thanks a lot for having me back again, Taylor. So Harvest Returns, we're a platform we started back in 2016. The original intention was to give people an access to investments in farming and ranching and agriculture. At the time, there were not a lot of ways to do that. You know, you could go out and find a farmland broker and buy a farm, and that took a lot of capital outlay and a lot of know-how, and you'd have to hire somebody to manage it if you didn't intend to farm it yourself. So along with that, there were some, some publicly traded REITs and things like that, farmland REITs, but you know, those are, those are a good way to get in at a low entry point, but they're also, you lose some of the, the non-correlation aspects of owning farmland or being invested in agriculture when you're in a publicly traded stock. And, you know, there's still that possibility of stock manipulation and, and that actually happened to at least one of those, those funds. And so we started a, basically a, a private placement firm. So we do what what you know, many passive investors know is syndications where we will put together a pool of money from our investors, put it into a investment vehicle, and we'll either take an equity position in these farms and ranches, or we'll, we'll do a loan, private credit. I know we're going to talk about that, or we will do other types of structures like, like convertible debt for some of the early stage companies that the sector of our, our business that's involved in uh, agriculture technology. Great. So, Debt versus equity investing. I feel that most real estate investors kind of pick one side that they're going to focus on. They're either going to be an equity person or they're going to be a lender or involved in the debt space in in some way. Not a lot of folks cross over that. Now, now you do both, but today we're going to focus on the private credit side of things. First off, let's talk a bit about the types of loans that you're making, who your typical borrower is and how the, you know, the cash flow is generated, the actual business model of the private credit. Yeah. You know, I, I'd even like to kind of back up before that, Taylor. It's like, sure. why, why that's is true. there private credit? You know, people are like, why don't Love these it. guys, that's the common question we always get is why don't these guys go to a bank? And, and so you have to kind of understand what's happened to banking in the bank industry the past two decades or so. And, and it's all about the, you know, people, you could, you or I could go to a bank and either try to get a, a personal loan or a commercial real estate loan, a, a mortgage or whatever. And it's not an easy process. It's not necessarily a, a straightforward process. And it, it's, there's very many 
people that are you know qualified on paper and looking, but they they still cannot get a loan. And there's a lot of reasons for that. And it it's it's mostly around regulation, and the banks are not incentivized to lend like they used to be. When I talk about the regulatory aspect, there's things like Dodd Frank, many people have heard of, and more recently Basel III, and all these these different regulations that that cause them to maintain balance sheets in a certain way that that it's not advantageous for them to lend. You know, they've got to keep the equity and the, the deposits, certain limits. And if they don't have those deposits, they can't make those loans. As we saw with the rates coming up in the past year or so, there was that that led to some problems in, in some banks, some of the, the regional banks like the, the Silicon Valley Bank and some of the others, you know, that had their equity positions invested in debt in, in the form of treasuries. And so when rates spiked, those, those assets lost value. It's, you know, in our particular case, the, the, the farmers, ranchers, they come to us for a lot of reasons. They want to expand their operation or start a new operation. And, you know, farming at its essence, they need land. Sometimes they need livestock. Sometimes they need heavy machinery. And, and when I say heavy machinery, you know, these combines, it's not like going out and buying a, a nice pickup truck. It's like buying several houses, you know, you know $800,000 million uh, piece of machinery infrastructure, fencing, things like that. So there's a lot of reasons that an agriculture business person might want to take on debt to expand or or grow their operation. And they like coming to us because we're flexible in the the terms that we do. And sometimes we'll take second positions that that's obviously there's some, we'll collateralize land. Everybody likes to collateralize land because it's, it's the, the most easiest thing to collateralize. It's just like collateralizing any, any piece of real estate. Um, but we'll also collateralize that, that equipment or, uh, even a livestock cattle can be collateralized. So, uh, we've got the terms that we can, we're pretty flexible. We're not, you know, because we're not a bank, we're not under weird standards. So it, it all comes down to making terms that work out for our investors that make our investors feel secure that make, and that are, the, the farmers and the, the ranchers can handle the, the debt service and, and giving them, you know, many of them sit on pieces of land that have been in their families for generations. And the last thing they want is somebody to take away that piece of land. It's not, you know, it's some office building that BlackRock's going to write off because, you know, the vacancies went up and, and the, the debt is coming due. They, that's not the way, you know, farmers and ranchers think they're, they're going to hold on to this land. They're going to do whatever they have they can to, you know, make good on their, their debt service. Okay. So we're going to, inflation has allegedly come down, but prices are still high and, you know, we'll see where that leads. But so it's a commodity dominated, or it is a commodity industry, right? Agriculture generally dependent on commodity prices. And we haven't seen like a big crash in any kind of agricultural product prices. I, I don't think that we will into the future, but Still, nevertheless, there's that exposure to commodity prices. You mentioned about collateralizing loans against land or other assets. How do you think about protecting that downside from the commodity price risk side of things? Yeah, I, it's a good point. And you're right about inflation and food inflation has been more sticky than other types of inflation. Oh, so. Yeah. Even today, I saw that like egg prices have shot back up, you know, for a while, chickens or eggs were crazy. And there's, you know, that's, there was COVID impacts and there's, there's today it's uh, like bird flu impacts. They have to call like 
millions and millions of birds, and that drives up the price of, of things like eggs. In the cattle industry, where we spend a lot of a lot of time, the herd sizes are still pretty small because of the culling that ha- happened last year because of droughts. Farmers couldn't, you know, they couldn't afford to feed, and they, the input costs that went up, they couldn't afford to feed their cattle, so they sent them all to slaughter. So that well, t- that because of some legacy COVID sort of impacts. I, I can't believe we're still saying COVID after, you know, three years, <laughs> out, four years later, but there's, there's still some, you know, shock waves from that or aftershocks from that, that, that cattle prices are still up. Cattle herds are small. So these, these farmers, these ranchers are coming to us to expand their cattle herds. And we tend to work with producers who are doing non-commodity products. So we're not necessarily doing like, you know, just soy, wheat, corn where it's interchangeable it all goes in a grain bin we do like things like grass-fed cattle so it's a premium product it's not as dependent on things like grain costs because they're eating grass so it's more dependent on weather than it is the price of a given commodity that said i mean it's 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 important to look at you know all the input costs that go into producing any given agriculture com- product or commodity you know so for us that's grass grass is mostly dependent on weather, rain, or irrigation. If it's, you know, there we're also in, in controlled environment agriculture, indoor agriculture. So that's, you know, take some of the risk out as far as weather, but it brings some other risks like the price of electricity, which hit a lot of those, those indoor growers the past few years as that spiked up because of the price of oil. Yeah. We try to take a very broad, holistic approach to these, looking at these investments and under, understanding what the risk is because there are so many different factors at play. And if you're just looking at one thing, you know, real estate, I always found it pretty straightforward because you're, you're looking at economic factors that cause vacancies to rise or fall. And that was, that was pretty much it. But there's, there's more of a 40 chess game with agriculture because you've got, you know, different variables there. Absolutely. And speaking about the commodity price aspect of things, there's a, there's a global situation, right? There's the ongoing war in Ukraine. And Ukraine was one of the world's biggest food exporters, like bar none. And mm-hmm. now that seems to be going away. So that's going to have an impact on food prices all around the world. We're an interconnected market and everything like that. So to get to what you said about there's a, a lot of knobs that you can turn and everything. When lending in this space, how do you even begin to approach the problem of setting interest rates, setting payoff periods, like are they yeah. fixed rate, a var- variable? You have to, I'm sure, be knowledgeable about the industry to make a wise loan, but how do you approach that problem of mm-hmm. setting loan terms even? Yeah, so a couple different aspects. So let's go to the the, the term, the duration of these loans. A lot of times it's, it's based on biology. You know, animals have a reproductive cycle. In the case of cows, it takes them nine months to gestate just like a person and they grow and they, they gain weight as certain, certain things. So we, we've been, you know, we started out with shorter term loans and we, you know, kind of some iterations back and forth with producers. We learned that a three-year term is really good for a cattle rancher. So that's what we've been doing there. As far as setting, setting rates, that's a little different. That's more market driven. You know, they, we, our investors want the highest rate they can get safely in the the person that's borrowing wants the lowest rate they can get. And the market has a say in that as well. And as we were, were talking about earlier, the, you know, when the risk-free rate is basically 5% now with, with CDs and, and treasuries for four to five, you know, roughly 
there's a lot more options for people who are investing or or saving. They can put their money in a, in a CD and keep rolling those over and, and make those returns. They're not going to want to take the risk to do like a 7%, 8% sort of loan, which is what we were doing, you know, for you say four years ago, that people were perfectly content to get their, their 7 or 8% payment when all they could get in the CD was like less than half a percent or 0.1% or whatever. And so now those rates have crept up above 15%. And if you look at other places in private credit outside of agriculture, I think that's, you'll find that those types of rates too. So for us, it's really a balance where, you know, the, the rate that we're getting, we want to make sure that the debt service can happen. You know, the debt service coverage ratios are, are, are reasonable so that we don't have to, you know, come after a farmer because they're not able to pay their, their notes. They're not able to pay the interest or the principal back. So you mentioned something that I wanted to get to here was defaults, the default rates, what your experience has been. I mean, it's just kind of the nature of the beast of, of lending. You're going to have to go after somebody eventually. Have you had to, have you handled that? Or if not, what's your plan? Yeah. So knock on wood, we, we haven't had any defaults, you know, we're not, and we're not doing when I, you know, I don't want to make it sound like we're a bank and we're doing hundreds of these. We, it's more like dozens of these, these that we've done. And, you know, the, the amount varies between a few hundred thousand dollars to a few million dollars when we do it, when we do a note. And we've had to extend a couple and we've got to take late payments and things like that, but we've, we've never had to do like workouts or short sales or, or anything like that or defaults. And, and hopefully we, we won't have to, you know, but like you said, probability is as it is that that may happen at some point and we might find ourselves having a, you know, auction off a piece of land or something, but I, I hope not. I, I think a more likely scenario was we would do a workout and, and, you know, figure out how to, the investors might take a, take a little bit of a haircut on interest rate, but the farmer might get hold onto their land. Probably the most expedient thing to do and the quickest thing you can get done. So I think one of the more interesting things that I've learned over the years as, as I've been a real estate investor is how much of a market there is, a secondary market for debt instruments yeah. like notes, for example, for loans. So for the listeners out there who might not know what that means, you make a loan to somebody, you get a, a basically a note, an IOU, right? And you can resell that IOU to someone else. You can sell that note, that debt instrument to another person and get out of that in your business and these loans to farmers for different agricultural needs, is there a secondary market for those loans? Have you explored that? How much have you gotten into there? You know, honestly, we haven't explored it. You know, it's, it is, it is amazing. Some of these, some of these platforms that allow real estate notes to be, you know, bought and sold are, are pretty cool, both performing and non-performing. No such thing like that exists in the ag world. And, and it's probably because there's just not much of a market. I mean, we're one of the few people that are doing it. I don't, I don't know any other platforms are, well, yeah, there, there may, there may be a couple of other sources, but yeah, I, that, that would be interesting. We haven't really shopped around because we, we, for the most part with rising interest rates up until recently, there hasn't been a reason to try to, you know, sell those. So, you know, rates fall that might, that might look different. You know, if we have non-performing assets that might look different, but for, for now there's, you know, it's been pretty nice situation where investors, they come in, they get their, their coupon payments, they get their principal back, and then hopefully they decide to invest in something else. Do you do things like in the mortgage space be considered a prepayment penalty? But if a, 
borrower pays off their note early, oh. for a debt investor, that's not a great thing. And depends on the environment and everything. But I planned on lending somebody money for five years and making a return for that five years, but they paid me off in one. Well, now I have to go find another investment. That's a risk of making a loan under certain terms. You can make that up with prepayment penalties, everything like that. Do you have prepayment penalties on your loans? We do. And, and we had that situation happen last year where we did a loan. The farmer went out and made, you know, we, we got a loan that he couldn't get from his bank. And so he went out and made some improvements. And in his case, he, he put irrigation in to enable him to grow more, more grass to, to, you know, raise more cows. And he didn't tell us he was going to, uh, he was going to, you know, refinance that, that land after he made those improvements, but he did. And fortunately we had a little prepayment penalty in there of 5%. You know, it was our investors got their money, their principal back and 5% after six months and nobody complained. And uh, quite a few of them ended up investing in another, you know, the next note that rolled around. So it was a win-win, but I, you know, I think that's, that's important, especially if rates start coming down to have those sorts of, if you're doing, if you're working in this, this private debt situation to kind of shield yourself, your investors from falling rates. Yeah. Something definitely to be aware of if you're in the debt space is the, the risk of early payoff sounds great, but it's not always what you might want. So this next question I think is going to be a little bit outside of left field, but I'm, I'm just inclined to ask it about consolidation in the agriculture world that we hear about. You know, I'm, I'm from a farming family on my dad's side. The family farm's still in the family. My grandma still lives on the farm. She's 94 and hopefully she lives That's much great. longer. And when she eventually goes, I certainly hope that the farm stays in the family. Won't be mine, but I hope one of my cousins gets it or something. But in general, these much larger farms in the Midwest, one of the big headlines that I've seen so many times is that these farms are getting bought up and consolidated by large buyers. I don't even know who they are, but this is something that we hear a lot about. What do you make of, of that? Are you concerned about that? Obviously, your customers are, are family farmers, but you know, in general, for the health of the industry, what are your thoughts about consolidation and farming? Yeah, it's, I, you know, from our perspective and my personal perspective, there's not that much of an impact because we we tend not to work with those, you know, those Midwest row crop farmers. There's other places. Those guys have a lot of sources of capital. I think, you know, from a broader look at, at, at farming and agriculture in the United States, it's probably, it's important, you know, that, that we're looking at it because, you know, there's fewer and fewer farmers back in the 1800s, early 1800s, 90% of Americans were farmers, you know, either they were, they were working in ag space somehow, you know, they, or at a minimum, they had like a farm in their, on their property to, to feed their family. And now they're, it's more like 2% of Americans are farmers. So as you have these, you know, corporate funds come in and buy up larger parcels, what, one, it drives the price. There, there's some evidence that, that the recent spikes in farmland um, pricing has, have been driven by investment activity and that's institutional investments. That's, you know, super high net worth individuals like Bill Gates buying up farmland. And, and, you know, there's been a lot of press recently about foreign buyers and, and states are coming and saying, Hey, no foreign buyers, no Chinese buyers, those sorts of things. And I think there's, that's good. But you know, a lot of, a lot of people and in, in farming and ranching multi-generational, just like your situation, the kids, the grandkids, the great grandkids don't want to farm because it's hard work. No matter how you're doing, it's still hard work. Even though you've got these big expensive combines, it's still hard work. 
and you find that there's increasing, like, you know, farmland is consolidating. So I don't know what the answer to that is. There are, you know, fortunately some other, other companies that were involved to a certain extent, but there's that are helping, you know, families hold on to land by giving loans or whatever and, and buying out equity investments to buy out siblings. And we, we participate in some of that to, to some extent. You know, it, it can get messy if there's a lot of errors and cousins and things like that, as you know, who owns what and who wants to still own and who doesn't want to own and who can afford to pay and who's dirt, you know, it, I, don't, I don't mean it's derogatory, but, but it kind of, it's true is, you know, dirt poor, but land rich, you know, a lot of yep. people on a lot of land that's worth millions and millions of dollars, but they're barely, you know, scraping together pennies. And that's very common in the agriculture world, farming and ranching world. So it's, it's a problem. I think it's at a bare minimum, something worth being, being well aware of. And those dirt rich, but land poor situations are, I think, in my opinion, are partly driving some of that consolidation because folks get in distress and they need to sell the farm and somebody big comes in and scoops it up. And my grandma grew up on the farm that she still lives on. So I certainly, you know, hope she, when she goes, it, it stays in the family. But anyway, now they're here and there. Right now, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. All right, Chris, I've got three questions I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? Yep, let's go. Great. Number one, what's your number one book recommendation? You know, I, I read a lot of books. I think a lot of people that invest are entrepreneurs. But the one that I read most recently that I, I would recommend, it's a long book. It's the Walter Isaacson biography on Elon Musk. If you really want to know what makes... I, I call him a hyper entrepreneur tick and his childhood and upbringing and just, it, it's, it's interesting, but it's also pretty amazing the way he works and the way he runs his companies. Nice. Question number two, who or what inspires you? So I'll keep on that theme and I'll say Elon Musk, not necessarily as a person. He may not be the person people want to emulate, but certainly as an entrepreneur and somebody who is able to, to accomplish sort of world changing things. And a lot of it is, it wasn't luck. It was his hard work and his, his genius. And, you know, I, I thought I'd have trouble identifying with it, but there are parts of the book that I identify with. I think anybody could, you know, anybody that's involved in, you know, sort of passive investing or working with small businesses or owns a small business himself might want to take a look at, at that book and uh, just kind of learn how Elon did it and what drives entrepreneurs. Cause you see a lot of that in his early upbringing and it wasn't necessarily a great upbringing, but. He's, he's definitely, I think the way he does things is driven by that. Nice. Yeah. Very inspiring, inspiring figure, very successful hyper entrepreneur, as you mentioned. Question number three, think about Chris at 80 years old. If you could sit down and have a conversation with 80 year old Chris, what advice, guidance, or feedback do you think he would give you? I'd say, and I tell people all this all the time, you know, keep moving. And if you're not moving, you're dying. And, and I say that you know, there, there's some truth to that, especially if you are 80 years old physically, but it's not just physically. It's, it's, you know, in your business, in your personal relationships, in your investing career, you, you gotta, you gotta be moving forward and, and whatever that means to you, moving, moving, not just sort of being static. So that's, that's the advice. Well, Chris, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing these insights on private credit in the agriculture space. If folks want to reach out, get in touch or track you down, where can they find you? Yeah, best place is just go to harvestreturns.com. Of course, we've got social media on all the different platforms, but the website, you can learn about our company. And if you want to decide 
to invest, you can do that as well. Great. Well, thank you once again for joining us today. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please take a moment and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every weekday. Right now, I hope you have a great rest of your day and we'll talk to you on the next one.